Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. This is our recommend or refute episode. You know the rules of the game here, okay? We go around the table, we talk about stuff that uh, we liked that we watched recently, or stuff that we didn't like that we watched recently, and we give you our honest opinions about it, and uh, then we give you a verdict. Should we recommend it or refute it? Uh, Joining me at the table is uh, Michael Dixon. What's up, John? Hey, hey! I, you, you watched, uh, you watched some holiday stuff, didn't you? What'd you watch? You fucking, you watched Love Actually. Love is all a oh, fuck, wank, bugger, shitting ass, head and hole. Is that in the Criterion Collection yet? Uh, you son of a bitch! Uh, I, I did. <laughs> I, I, I did watch Love Actually with the lady friend. Oh dear me! How are the mighty fallen? I could safely put my hand up my ass and say that is the worst I've heard this century. Uh, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. A ringing endorsement for love, actually. <laughs> Michael Dixon, everybody. Uh, and also joining us, our guest from the last episode, my brother, Mark Garcia. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's going all right. Ready to hear about recommendations or refutations, uh, folks. I am your host, John Garcia, of course. And now let's hop right into it. So, uh, Mark, what do you have wrapped for us under the Christmas tree this year? Yeah, so um, this holiday season, I decided to take a trip down memory lane and rewatch a series I haven't seen since uh, my my now wife and I started dating. Um, and that is, I'm rewatching uh, Battlestar Galactica. Moments ago, this ship received word of a Cylon attack against our home worlds is underway. The world is over. Humanity's children are returning home. The fight is just beginning. This war is over. We lost. We have 50,000 people left. We leave this solar system and we don't look back. Jump! The series that redefines science fiction. Yes, we're tired. And yes, we are still expected to do our jobs. It won't be an easy journey, but I promise you one thing. Earth will become our new home. So say we all. So say we all. So say we all. Battlestar Galactica. So this is not the original 1970s Battlestar Galactica. This is the Battlestar Galactica that came out in the, I guess, late aughts um, to early 2010s. Um, starring Edward James Olmos, uh, nice. Katie Sackhoff. Um, I'm trying to remember yeah. um, <laughs> the actress who played the mom from uh, Donnie Darko. Um, oh, yeah. I, don't, I cannot I remember her name. But Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, there you go. Jake <laughs> there Gyllenhaal. All right. So for uh, all <laughs> intents and purposes, Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, but this, this is kind of a product of its time. Um, this is around the time when Lost was really, really big. Um, I have not actually seen Lost all the way through. I've seen a, a smattering of episodes and it just didn't resonate with me. And then, of course, all of the uh, hubbub about the writers not necessarily knowing where they were going with it and everything. Um, but this is around the time when TV dramas were starting to basically do the the formulaic thing of let's do an episode of exposition where we provide the viewer with some really tantalizing details, build a mystery, and then give them two or three episodes of padding um, where we have the characters they know and love, but there's nothing that happens in terms of the plot line. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, the setup for Battlestar Galactica is really fascinating. Um, Man had created essentially this organization or, yeah, essentially organization of these organisms that were at, at first like robots called the Cylons. And... 
Um, there was essentially a point where the Cylons gained sentience and left. Mm -hmm. um, and originally they were these metallic looking kind of campy uh, creatures and creations, but they essentially left humanity and then there was nothing heard from them at any point in time. And every single year, um, humanity would send a representative to this satellite station to meet with the Cylons and the Cylons never came. And then all of a sudden at the beginning and offset of this new series, the Cylons come through. But then in the midst of them is this woman uh, play, played by Trisha Heffler, who comes and sits down and starts parlaying with the representative from humanity before the battle station or wherever their meeting is blown up. Mm -hmm. And so the whole kind of crux of this is Cylons have now evolved to a point where they look like humans. They can fit in with humans and there are sleeper agents in the midst of humanity. And so you spend the entire series trying to figure out who all of the Cylons are. Um, and at the same time, they've essentially eradicated almost every single individual in humanity and the humans who remain are now all traveling on a single, uh, within a single fleet. And there is a single battleship, um, in this fleet that is protecting them called Battlestar Galactica. And it's run by, um, Captain Edward James almost, um, who's Captain Adama, Lee Adama, uh, is his son. And so Captain Adama is the, the reason why his ship was not blown up was he didn't have any of the current technology like that all the other battle stars had implemented in them. And so ah, the Cylons could not necessarily like infiltrate. It's a firmware issue. Exactly. It was a firmware <laughs> yeah. issue. It, it was not a bug. It was a feature. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so you spend a large chunk of the story trying to find out who all of the Cylons are and there are slow reveals that happen during the first three seasons and it builds to there are fi uh, final five Cylons that they're going to reveal to you who are the ones that orchestrated essentially everything. Um, and as you go through all of this, there is a scientist, Gaius Balthar, who is responsible for giving up a lot of humanity's trade secrets to the Cylons without realizing it. And he, um, had a romantic involvement with um, number six of the silence. I think there were 12 units total, but number six, who is played by Trisha Heffler. And when she's not with him, he has these moments and tendencies where he starts seeing her around him um, in this kind of ethereal form. And so there's this side mystery where you're trying to figure out what this manifestation of her actually is. And she keeps telling him that like everything he's doing is within accordance with God's plan. And that he's acting within the frame of this deity who's guiding everything. Um, it's a really fascinating show, but I will say that like, while the first two seasons are really, really, really intricate and tightly woven, it starts to lose a lot of its luster as you get closer and closer to the end. And it does kind of feel just like lost from what I've read that the writers didn't really know where they were going with the show. The writers were lost. Yes. The writers were lost to some degree. So um, beyond the the episodes that are just filler, um, when you start to get to some of the bigger reveals, like who the final five are um, and then also why Gaius is seeing this, um, you know, this other Ethereal representation. Yeah. yeah. Like what the fuck is actually going on? And there's a lot of letdown down towards the end of it Ugh. ultimately i do recommend it if you haven't seen it i think it's worth a single viewing all the way through um but like 
if you're going to choose to come back to it later or not, once you get to the very, very end is going to be debatable. So um, there are a lot of character pieces and, and relationships that are built throughout it that I think are very, very worth it. Um, and it's nice to see them come to their conclusions. But sometimes, again, those conclusions feel either ham fisted or um, just like you're gypped a bit because the writers just didn't know what to do with some of the characters. Mm. So. Did you or are you planning to watch it all the way through on this rewatch? I am. Um, so I'm about eight episodes into the first season. Um, the first three episodes each are like multiple hours long because it originally was just done as a miniseries. And those first few episodes are really, really intricate, really tightly written um, because they were meant to kind of gain interest from viewership. Mm -hmm. um, and so that first season is pretty fucking solid. Um, and so I am planning on watching it all the way through. And also I want to do it because I want to know if maybe I have a deeper appreciation for it now that I'm, you know, 10 years beyond when I last watched it versus when I watched it that first time. Um, I'm going to just temper my expectations for the big twists when they get towards the end. Um, but I am I'm just trying to prep myself in case there's going to be that same disappointment I had the first go around. So compared to some of the things that I think of one, like two big names right now that are associated with science fiction, which one of them doesn't need to be is Star Trek and Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, Star Wars is fucking fantasy. Yep. Uh, and people keep saying it's science fiction and it's, it's it irks me. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, like, how does this in the spectrum between, let's just say that they're opposite ends, Star Trek and, and Star Wars, where on the spectrum does Battlestar Galactica fall? And I will be honest, while you were talking about it, I kept thinking you meant Babylon 5. Uh, <laughs> too many things that began with B that were yeah. science fiction related that I remember. Um, this is going to fall more on the Star Trek side. I'd say it, it's closer to Firefly, actually, okay. than, uh, than even Star Trek, because you're not going to see alien races. It really is going to focus primarily on... Um, just the Cylons and the humans. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the, the, um, a lot of the episodes are, you know, based in, I mean, I guess some of the things I really enjoy about them is they're based on like the drama of humanity and what something like if there was actually a race of beings that was coming to destroy us, like some of the tough decisions we would have to make. So for example, in the first episode, um, like when humanity is attempting to run from silence, the silence have basically destroyed all 12 colonies where humanity currently occupies planets in the universe. Yeah. And um, Edward James almost is trying to run with whatever fleet is left. It's, it's literally thousands of humans. That's it. Mm. Um, maybe tens of thousands, but there is a point where the Cylons are about to attack and um, the engine bay is on fire. And there are still people in the engine bay trying to fix the fires, but they have to make a call and to get the engines up and running, they've got to basically open the airlocks and just flush out that fire yeah. so that they can they can do a, a light speed jump. Gotcha. Um, and so they have to make that call and there's fallout amongst the crew disagreeing with the XO and the people who make the decision. And they're like, look, if if. So-and-so had to make the decision. They would have made the same fucking decision. And that's just kind of what we've got to do. Yeah. Um, and then there's several other instances where it's kind of like that. So there is quite a bit of drama built between the characters. Um, there at any given point in time can be deaths that are both expected or unexpected. Um, <clears throat> and it does a pretty good job of having 
a larger cast, but also spending good amounts of time with each character so you can actually start to develop connections with those characters. Yeah. Um, and the characters are smartly written too. Like okay. every single one kind of behaves the way you would anticipate it to. Um, I think, you know, faster than light is really the only science fiction aspect beyond just obviously like them all living in space. <laughs> yeah, in space. And what they're really trying to do is at this point in time in humanity's existence, they have been so far removed from earth. Like they've colonized the whole galaxy that they don't actually know where earth is. Mm. And so part of them, it's almost kind of like a weird sci-fi Noah's Ark that they're trying to basically make their way back to earth mm. um, with whatever, you know, shreds of humanity are left. Gotcha. So, yeah. It sounds like there's a lot more tension to it um, just because like Star Trek is usually, Hey, we're having adventures. There's ethical quandaries that happen among those adventures, but there's not necessarily a through line. Uh, there are obviously like factions that surface and everything else, but here it's like, clear cut there's Cylons and humans and we have no idea who might be what and there's more of that suspense that they play on um so okay uh, I can see that do the do the episodes feel big do they feel like more claustrophobic like when we're talking about the average episode is it more of this takes place on the deck and we're seeing that or is there more of like an interstellar thing of them trying to look at other potential planets is that earth or like that kind of stuff um, they do a pretty good balance in the initial episodes of having it exist outside of just the fleet that's traveling. Um, so like you've got a couple of marooned members of the fleet who mm -hmm. wound up on various planets. Um, and then you've got Cylons where you'll occasionally spend some time with some of the Cylons, um, to see kind of what their plans are. And then you will spend some time in the fleet, but not just necessarily on Battlestar Galactica, but also on some of the other ships mm. with any of the events that are happening there. So one of the things that happened during um, like the bombings is the president of the colonies and everybody else below him for the most part until the um, secretary of education were all destroyed and killed yeah. and so the secretary of education has now become the president um and so she's basically doing what she can um and so you you are part of the time spending your time with her um lee adama who is um who plays you know adama's son adama is played by edward james edward almost james, yeah. they have a conflict in their relationship as father and son and so there's of course drama okay. there um katie sokoff plays a childhood friend who was married to lee adama's brother Leodama's brother's dead, yeah. but you're not revealed how. So she's got a relationship there. Um, and so it it does a pretty good job of making a lot of these initial episodes feel pretty big. Um, mm. You got a lot of really, really like high stakes. And then as you start to dial into um, each of the characters plights, it becomes more about identifying who the Cylons are and what the heck is happening. And so a really good example is one of the episodes. What they're finding is they're trying to do faster than light jumps and their engines have to recharge after each one. Mm -hmm. And every 33 minutes, the Cylon fleet catches back up with their fleet and they have to do another faster than light jump. Okay. And so they're trying to figure out why it's every 33 minutes and how they could prospectively avoid the silence finding them. Mm -hmm. um, and then that turns into this whole thing where one of the ships is left behind and then suddenly reappears three hours later when they seem to have broken the 33 minute cycle, but now it has nukes on board and they can't get in, in touch with anybody who is on uh, that ship. Okay. So, um, so yeah, it's, um, for the time, uh, I think it was on sci-fi 
Yeah. Uh, now Siffy, of course. Yeah. For short <laughs> for Syphilis. Um, <laughs> um, but it does a pretty good job of towing the line. Um, they, 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 similar to Firefly, found ways to curse without cursing. Okay. Um, so they use the word frack uh, pretty frequently to mean fuck. Um, and so they'll, anytime they really want to swear, they'll say that, which I believe for Firefly, what they did was they simply spoke in Mandarin. Yes. Um, as yeah, a means of, of cursing. Um, but Edward James almost is amazing in it. Uh, he does a really good job on the offset. And, and I will say like, you know, one of the biggest issues I typically have with a lot of these drama driven shows is the first season can sometimes feel very, very weak. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, they're finding their feet. They're trying to figure out what the show's going to be about. And this show is almost the opposite of that. It, mm-hmm. it starts out really, really strong and it's very easy to get absorbed and just kind of keep going with it. Interesting. Yeah. So you can ride that high and yeah. just crash with it. Exactly. If it still crashes as you project it will yep so i i definitely recommend at least a single viewing of it um it's only four seasons uh i think 22 episodes but each is about 50 minutes long so it's a good chunk pretty meaty um yeah. but once you get going with it it's pretty hard to stop watching it. the fact that the intro section is just a mini series also kind of speaks to how much it wants to hook you and so i feel like after those first few episodes if you're really not in then you're not in yep and i will say heather heather and i had only been dating for um a matter of months when i subjected her to it and i forgot that those first few episodes like i forgot that on the the dvds i had that that first episode was three hours long so i was like oh it's it's an hour long we'll watch it and And so at like nine o'clock at night when she has like work and school the next day i'm like yeah let's just watch it it's it's nine o'clock well it'll be done before you know it and then like she's like i need to go to bed it's 10 30 i'm like oh no no it's only like 15 minutes more and then it's like 12 30 and she's like what the fuck but then like the next day she came back home and she's like all right let's watch the rest so (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a mark of a good show there you go that's funny yeah, the yeah. uh typically the only time i watch the sci-fi channel is during the summer when they put your out a bunch shitty of shitty shark movies, shark movies. <laughs> you do your schlock version uh-huh <laughs> yeah that that's my schlock sharknado and like, giant spider yeah uh-huh yeah the sharknado movies uh trailer park shark is a favorite of mine uh-huh. uh you're hearing sharks... this everybody you're hearing this folks uh-huh. out there yeah. he chastises me all the time for it but he does it himself <laughs> uh well, it's see, a he... certain genre of schlock that i that i <laughs> like He's got a piece of paper with tape, and yeah. on the paper he writes A24, and he just <laughs> he tapes it on the screen, <laughs> and then once it sounds like the initial title card is done, he pulls it down, and he's ready to go. Yeah, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> Technically counts. <laughs> they'll, they'll all be restored by the criteria. Chooses the uh, French yeah. dialogue option I can't, I can't the language wait. Menu. I can't wait for those movies to show up on Vinegar Syndrome. <laughs> I have a Blu-ray of all six Sharknado movies. Oh, I wow. Knew I knew you uh, would. I have not cracked it open since I, I purchased it, but, um, <laughs> you know, I like the absurdity of, of them and just how yes. stupid they are. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, I haven't watched the Sci-Fi Channel since, I guess, Futurama was on it. That's really yep. the last time that I've ever... This is this is one of the few gems, I think, came from the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, so I would, I would, I thought it was really funny when they started showing wrestling on the sci-fi show. <laughs> <laughs> I, in a way it can be science fiction, I suppose, yeah. if you had Dr. Destroy or some shit. It's definitely, it's definitely fiction. I'm not sure how much science is involved. Um, the sweet science of <laughs> wrestling. Those steroids didn't make themselves. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Uh, There's got to be some science on how to make a man macho. <laughs> brother. Uh, well, cool. That's a recommend for Battlestar Galactica. I have to stop myself from saying Babylon 5. <laughs> it's just... Babylon Galactica. <laughs> yes, that's right. Battlestar 5. <laughs> uh, Dixon, what do you got for us? Yeah, so um, I did watch Live Actually this week. Oh, Jesus, not that crap again! That is not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about American fiction. Muck, your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. Look at what they publish. Look at what they expect us to write. I just want to rub their noses in it. <laughs> I be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. We sold a book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah. Mr. Lee can't use his real name. Is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that shit? No, no. No, I don't. A new movie that's out in theaters now, written and directed by Cord Jefferson. This is the first movie that Cord Jefferson has directed. He made his name as a TV writer um, on The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, which I really liked when that was on. That was mm-hmm. like after Colbert that came on, took on that 1030 slot mm-hmm. after The Daily Show. Yeah. Um, he was a writer on Master of None on The Good Place, and on The Watchmen uh, TV show. Oh, damn. So he did did a lot of work on TV, and then now wrote and directed American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright as a writer and professor uh, who has written several novels that are really well thought of and seem to be very well written books, but are just not moving a lot of copies. He's kind of an asshole professor and he's dealing with like fragile Gen Z students where like he's teaching a class on literature of the American South and like the N word comes up in his class. And one of his white students is like, that word is offensive to me. I can't believe you're using that in this class. And he's like, (laughs) "Uh, all due respect. If I got over it, you can get over it. (laughs) And uh, then promptly has a meeting with administration where they're like, you're offending the students. It's like, when did they all get so goddamn sensitive? Like, you need to take some time away. uh, So he has to go to Boston to see his family. And he's kind of a character who has separated from his family as an adult and kind of views that as a badge of honor. Like he has has kind of moved on and done his own thing. He doesn't seem to really enjoy interacting with his family. He has an elderly mother back in Boston and a sister who's living there played by Tracy Ellis Ross, who is kind of taking on the burden of her care. Um, He also has a, a brother who is a plastic surgeon who has uh, divorced his wife because she walked in on him with a man and he in his middle age is now kind of dealing with his homosexuality and the fact that like his wife has divorced him and his kids can't stand him. Um, he's played by Ster- Sterling K. Brown. Uh, this is a really good cast in, in this movie. Um, if you've seen the trailer, the trailer makes this seem like kind of an absurdist comedy and it it is in some respects, but it's also a very grounded character piece in other respects. And I wasn't expecting that going in. And I was 
really pleasantly surprised to see those two things kind of melded together. So, you know, if you've seen the trailer, you know, the premise where, you know, he basically has not gotten any sales on his books. He sees this uh, black writer played by Issa Rae who writes this like novel that he thinks is terrible that is playing off of black poverty and is getting a bunch of uh, awards from white critics and writers who think it's just the greatest thing, this, you know, slice of life piece into black lives. And it's nothing that Issa Rae's character has ever experienced. She's just written this as like, uh, you know, what Jeffrey Wright sees as a cynical project as like poverty porn to get white people to, to like it and feel guilty about it and, and buy it. And so he, you know, when he goes back to Boston, he's dealing with his mom and she needs medical care. She's gotten to the point where she can't really take care of herself anymore. And they're having to put her in a, a full-time care facility and trying to come up with the money to do that. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to write one of those books. And he's like, you know, they, he's, he's trying to sell a book that he has already written that none of the publishers want to buy. And they're like, we want a black book. And he's like, I'm black. It's my book. It's a black book. And his, his, uh, manager is like, dude, like, you know what I mean? Like they want something that feels black. And so he writes a, what he thinks is a horrible piece of trash book where he's like misspelling all the words and, and, you know, writing about gangsters and gun violence and rappers and deadbeat dads and all the shit that he, you know, like whatever, fine. I'll just write the shit that you want. And, you know, he views it as a joke. And then immediately gets all these offers from all these publishers saying, oh, my God, this is incredible. We we want to publish this. And he writes it under a pseudonym so he doesn't like tarnish what he's done personally. And he has a really hard time dealing with that where he's like, you know, no, I did this as a joke. You need to hate this. Like and they're like, no, we love it. This is wonderful. <laughs> like we want to buy the movie rights and we want to give you a bunch of money and print a million copies and, and send it all over the place. And he's he's really having trouble with his identity as like you know you know i'm this intellectual this really good writer and i did this as a fuck you to the industry just because i was angry one night and i just wrote this in a single drunken stupor of a night to just fuck with all you people and now you all you crazy white people love it like this is insane <laughs> and you know it's the the trailer really focuses on that piece of it and i think does so in a, in a way that is good kind of hook to get you into the premise of the movie but most of the movie is actually him dealing with his family dynamics in Boston and kind of re-ingratiating himself into his old neighborhood and having to, um, you know, have relationships with his adult siblings that he's kind of ignored for a really long time. And I, I oftentimes think those types of movies are interesting where like adult siblings have to kind of come back together and deal with each other as adults in a different dynamic than they did when they were kids. They're not really comfortable with that and how it plays out. Um, Jeffrey Wright is incredible in this. I always love Jeffrey love Wright and everything he's that he great. does. He's he's so good. I'm really glad that he got this opportunity and this really well written role to really kind of show what he can do. Um, all the all the the cast is great. Tracy Ellis Ross is great. Sterling K. Brown is great. Um, but it's it, it's really well written movie, and it it feels like it's kind of doing two different things but it melds those two things together in a way that that's really satisfying in the the section of the movie that's dealing with his familiar relationships and going back home there are some things that feel a little bit familiar and tropey 
Um, but they're done really well. Um, and not everything feels that way, but there are some moments where I'm like, yeah, okay, I've I've seen that. Um, but it was done really well, and Jeffrey Wright acted the shit out of it. And I was like, you know what? That's fine. Like, I, I can get behind this. And so uh, there's a lot of really interesting new concepts that are written to this movie, and then just, like, some really good character development and and just good, solid writing and, and family dynamics. So um, I would definitely recommend people check out American Fiction. Is there any other movie that you feel um because you just talked about there are new concepts kind of written into this but is there any other movie that you think about when you think about american fiction as well like a pairing or something that's similar that it felt to oh that's interesting um i don't know that's a good question i guess the all the stuff about him as a writer and dealing with kind of how society wants to view him as a black writer i thought was was really fascinating and the way that like he was judging other black writers I thought was was a pretty interesting dynamic where it was like the movie was comment commenting on the culture around it but it was also kind of pointing out that he was sort of a hypocritical shithead as well like it's not letting him off the hook in that um and that was kind of the piece of the movie that I that I liked is like he's a complicated character and well I, I liked all the movie but like just that aspect of it was stuff that i felt that felt kind of fresh and you know okay this is a an interesting reaction by a black writer director to the post george floyd era where you have all this white guilt <laughs> flooding into society and and people some genuinely and some cynically for capitalistic reasons trying to like put their uh you know rethink uh, how they are are dealing with themselves and society in relation to black culture and all these things. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting perspective that it felt very fresh. And then, um, but but the family stuff is really great too. And I'm, I'm sure I could think of a bunch of movies that match those family dynamics. Nothing is popping into my head yeah. at the moment. But... Something with Medea's in it? <laughs> I, I have actually never seen any Tyler Perry movies. So I, I'm trying to to keep that going but uh, yeah <laughs> um yeah because the, the entire time he talked about it i could only think of movies that were kind of the antithesis to it or something that re-emphasized the points that american fiction would make like oh if you watch this movie and you watch like the blind side mm. or if you watch this movie and you watch green book or like any yeah. of those that have to meet that i know like uh, as as much as i not a huge fan of like Seth Myers, I don't know who I'm not entirely sure who is, but it's, uh, it's out there. There are some people. Whoever's sure. out there is yeah. out there. But he did do one funny sketch I liked uh, on his show that was all about like exploiting the white savior trope from like any of the historical movies where they would show like a strong black woman doing something or a strong black man. And he was Seth Myers was the guy who just wandered in and did like one fucking little thing that let them like live in white society. And everybody's like, Oh my God, he's so brave. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought that was a fucking brilliant sketch, just scathing uh, satire. So yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see American fiction. Uh, I, I, yeah, the trailer hooked me and I read a little bit about the book that it's based on and I found it to be really interesting that it was also this kind of critique. And the more you talked about it, it reminds me of, there's another, there's a boondocks episode where, uh, they have like an Al Sharpton character played by CeeLo Green oh. who, um, starts exploiting, uh, a lot of like 
the plight of I think one of the Freeman brothers gets called the N word, and they're like, "We're going to take this to all the news outlets." And Ann Coulter gets involved. Oh god! And then it turns out that <laughs> Ann Coulter is running a con with the Al Sharpton guy, where they basically just both rage at each other to drive book sales up. It's oh, fucking great. It's an excellent <laughs> episode. Um, but yeah, like that's what it reminds me of. Is like you just got to play to that pander. Like that's really what it is in a lot of the. People want to see things that they think are authentic, not that actually are authentic to an experience or an understanding. Yeah. Um, and it, like, it, there's an interesting moment between Jeffrey Wright and Issa Rae's characters where he ends up in a like working relationship with her where he's like, she's criticizing a book that he thinks is similar to hers. And he's like, why do you, yeah, you think that's pandering? So do I, how is that different than your book? Mm -hmm. And she's like, clearly like she's a college graduate. She like went to a private college. She's an intellectual. She worked for a big publisher in New York. She's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is not your life. What are you doing? And she's like, I did a lot of interviews to, you know, this is based on real things of people that I, I talked to. And, but like, she feels like she thinks like I wrote this real thing. That's legit. And I did the, journalistic thing of going into the slums and writing about stuff and you know it's to some degree there's value to that right and so the the movie is like not really casting like it's letting you kind of determine how you feel about all these Mm. characters and and all of them have their flaws and their um you know their strengths and um I, i think it's I, I like that. I love movies that have complex characters like that. Like we're not just going to make everybody good or bad. And you just kind of have to figure this out for yourself as you go. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a, a better and more mature writing of um, some of the aspects of the movie crash. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think would be a good one. I know you haven't seen it Dixon, I but not. it is very back uh, like after school special feeling in oh. a lot of, like it's very manipulative in yep. forcing you and making you feel certain ways about certain characters and characters freely and openly talk about topics and in ways that they would never do in real life. Nobody's going to be that blatantly racist. Yeah. And so it, it is very much like it, the racism and stereotyping is like more at the surface and in your face. And every single character has it as a quote unquote flaw in addition to having strengths. But it very much feels like, um, you know, a bunch of execs and writers got into a room and said, how can we make a movie that checks these boxes and does this? Um, and the movie has a couple of merits, obviously, like I know it won for best picture that year. And I used to be very, very like hot on it when it first came out. Um, but in rewatches, I'm like, man, this is very, very manipulative. It's and so this sounds, yeah. yeah, this, this sounds like a much more like grounded approach to basically, trying to both point out some of the issues that exist for both uh, African-Americans in general, as well as like the white guilt and what that Mm -hmm. is doing to like the message in addition to them trying to basically be authentic and authentic to themselves. Um, And, and without it being overly pandering, like you were saying, it sounds like it, it really does force the viewership to kind of sit with it, whether you're uncomfortable or not and think about it and what it might mean. So that's, that's interesting and and very appealing to me. I like the concept of that debate of where do you draw the line between your work is genuine and mine's not or vice versa. Um, Like that seems like an interesting prospect and the fact that they didn't identify which is which uh, all, all the better. 
like yeah i I don't want those kinds of like things being waved out as like oh well, we definitely know that it's it's gonna be um you know isa ray's book that's false or some shit um Mm -hmm. i like that confrontation yep i want to see it i i already wanted to see it i want to see it more now yeah you should you should check it out the the only like critique i have is that one there there are a couple things that i thought were a little cliche but again i thought they were done really well and then the ending i don't know if it fully lands um it felt like they weren't really sure quite how to wrap it up and it gets a little meta toward the end which always usually doesn't sit quite well with me yeah Yeah, it's it but like it didn't move any didn't upset me i was just like this is a little bit weaker than the rest of the movie that's so sharp and the ending feels like a little bit of a cop out Mm. but um it's definitely worth worth watching it's 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 a very good movie well very fascinating i'm gonna have to check out american fiction dixon uh and uh i uh, i'll round us out here um I'm bringing a TV show. Uh, as I, I think I told y'all before we started recording, I watched something new that I'm very excited about. It just came out on Netflix recently. Um, it is Carol and the End of the World. Hurtling towards Earth. There isn't a single person out there who doesn't have it. The hunger to do more, be more, live more. I don't really know what I want. Everyone's got all these plans, and I... Passive job walk-offs making work a thing of the past. Find meaning. Live the life you want, in the way you want. Time is almost up! So this is... Name? Um, Carol. Carol Cole. I'm an administrative assistant for an accounting department. I don't know how it works, or why it's even there. But I like it, and it makes me happy. Sometimes you just gotta give things time to be lost ready to die before they can be found. Carol! Carol! Carol? Carol? Carol! Carol Daphne Cole. I love you, Carol. This show stars Martha Kelly. She is a, an Austinite. Uh, as far as I've known, um, she was in some Master Pancake shows. She's been in a few other things. I've seen her do some stand-up. Um, she's gone on to have, I would say, a successful career doing what she wants to do in Hollywood. She was in a Marvel movie for like five seconds in Spider-Man. Uh, I think that she was in another Spider-Man. And then she was in Baskets with Zach Galifianakis, which I've heard a lot of rave reviews about. And that show being wild, I haven't really watched it. But everything that I've kind of seen Martha doing, I've been like, yeah, go get it, Martha. That's fucking awesome. So when a trailer came out for this show, Carol on the End of the World, it's kind of animated in a similar style to um, other Netflix shows uh, that, that I've seen recently. If you if that doesn't really describe it, but if you've seen one of the Netflix animated shows, like the one about the conspiracies corporation and all this other stuff, you sort of know what the animation style might look like. And Carol on the End of the World has... Um, a style that I would say is like understated and yet fully utilized uh, in in the the best ways it can in a medium. It has some trippy surreal scenes. It has a lot of other things, but really the important thing is it's about Carol and the end of the world, as the title hints. Um, this show kicks off by showing you that the Earth is on a collision course. Not the Earth isn't traveling, but a planet is on a collision course named Kepler with the Earth. Uh, everybody will be dead within seven-ish months. Um, Carol, being one of those people, 
is trying to figure out, she's struggling to figure out exactly how she wants to live her life and what she wants to do. Um, where people around her are spray painting carpe diem on cars and live, laugh, love in hotels. Uh, she is trying to find normalcy in the chaos of paragliders through the city and abandoned cars. Um, the, the opening episode, she talks with her parents about it and her parents are very concerned because the neighbors reported that they saw somebody who looked like her sitting alone in an abandoned Applebee's <laughs> and, <laughs> and waiting uh, to which Carol denies this and lies and says that she is actually picking up surfing, uh, which her parents then gift her a surfboard for. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it speaks to a character who at the end of everything, when you're asked that question of like, what is important to you? doesn't know what the answer should be there's so much about her and the show is about getting to know her but not even getting to know her in a close way like following her in every episode um of course carol does play a lead role does is the title character is in a majority of the episodes but some of them focus split their focus between her and another character um be it her her mom and dad her sister who is out adventuring in the wilds and sending her sister sends them vhs tapes of skydiving and uh, telling people to live life to the fullest and that kind of stuff the complete opposite of carol and carol's uh, almost envious of that that knowing what you want to do and so one day she finds herself following a stranger who seems to be put together and completely confident into a building. And that building has an accounting firm that just happens to be in the middle of an audit. They're on like the 20th floor and two floors above them is marketing and one floor below them is sales. But both of those floors are completely empty. So they're living some kind of weird fucking lie <laughs> and trying to keep it together. Um, and As an accountant, <laughs> that sounds like something accountants would do at the end of the world. Uh, and, and everybody on that floor is way more concerned with the amount of toner in the printers and the copies they can make yeah. and the numbers that they need to be punching into the spreadsheet than they are that big fucking planet that's lo looming in the sky and in every episode kepler is there like somewhere in the distance it is this giant hulking planet of swirling gases just hurtling towards earth um but despite that fact the show is not about like Kepler at all. It's not about how that's going to end. Um, spoilers, but also not spoilers. Uh, it it d doesn't show how Kepler collides. There's not like a Toy Story 3 moment where all the characters hold hands and accept their fate of death. Everybody in the show has already accepted that they're going to die and they are now processing through different forms of grief, different steps in grief, what's going to happen to them, how it's going to happen, and exactly what it means to them to be alive and what's important for them. Um, you have like boat captains who have, are still doing cruises like after decades and the world's going to end and they're doing it here for some reason. And you have like the power still on in certain neighborhoods. And there's one woman who lives in Cincinnati. Nobody else lives there anymore. <laughs> and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and there's like these, these weird little ticks and they have, like television shows and broadcasts that are now based off of the end of the world as well. Commercials have completely shifted to be about living your life to the fullest. What does it mean for you to be fulfilled? And it's like this whole pivot that society has, has taken on. Um, and it's just fascinating to watch Carol in the middle of it, not really give in to any of that, like not give a shit about it. At times you feel like in a, in a more conventional storytelling narrative, it's about a woman who 
is completely cut off and she doesn't know how to live her life. It's like Jim Carrey and Yes Man. I don't know who's seen that here, but me. Uh, yeah, it's it's like Jim Carrey and Yes Man, where you know you've said no for so long. Now it's time for you to say yes to everything in life. Say yes to dating a Zoe Deschanel who's half your age. Exactly. <laughs> There's no questions about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it, it has that vibe that you feel like at every turn, one character or another is bound to soften. And no, it's about real people who can't change that fast to accommodate the end of the world. They can only try to process it through their lenses and have realizations and epiphanies of like, I've been a fool because of this or that, but they don't change because of those epiphanies. They change very minorly because of them. And it feels so grounded for being such a bizarre animated show about really absurd circumstances um, that it comes out feeling like wholesome, like Joe Para uh, or like pig in that kind of like nihilism that it embraces. Uh, and it, it becomes focused. And I would say like, I think we talked about during our uh, holiday episode, um, like commercialism in shows and stuff. And like, there is, I mentioned Applebee's earlier. There's like other product placement that happens in the show, but all of it is kind of used. Like there are fake brands that are used and there are real brands that are used. And I think the real brands are used in a way to ground you more to like the things that you know in the real world, like normalcy in like sitting in an Applebee's instead of sitting in whatever the equivalent fictional thing is. Like, I feel like they use the brand names to focus the jokes within them rather than to have it be like, Oh, you know, it's a fictionalized place where we can put like goofy shit on the wall or anything. It establishes some real world. Yeah. It's a flingers. Yeah. (laughs) It establishes some real world connection. So you can focus more on the characters and how they feel when they're going into that space. Um, and I, I just liked how that was handled. I like a lot of the way the story is told. It's sort of mixed medium in a way, like uh, different episodes have different perspectives. They apply. One is very dream centric where all the employees at this accounting firm are asked to stay late and they sleep through different parts of their shifts and they're having conversations in the break rooms that maybe happen or maybe don't. And there's another episode that's entirely told through uh, a VHS tape that Carol's sister is watching and it has the recording of her and Carol going hiking after the world is ending, started ending. And one before when she's kind of in Spain and like enjoying her life and just adventuring anyway. Um, and getting those kinds of moments, those glimpses, even in that episode with the tape, um, there are serious talks that happen that the show doesn't let you see. It just implies that they happen and you just have to assume what, what it would have been because Otherwise, it would have probably weighed itself down with schmaltz and some kind of like monologued sincerity. But instead, it lets the real moments happen off camera where they need to. And then you can only infer from the characters and their performances what's going on. They even do a whole episode or a piece of an episode where characters sit in a tanning booth and just have tanning goggles on their eyes and are trying to like talk about different things with each other. And from there, the episode solely focuses on the emotion that can be channeled in the voices. Like the facial expressions are removed because mm. you can't see the eyes anymore. And I found it to be really fucking bold for them to take that approach to just like let the actors step it up and show you what that kind of emotion is. So, uh, yeah, Carol, the end of the world was fucking great. And I, I recommend it. 
Interesting. Um, this reminds me, it, it seems like a um, kind of the opposite of don't look up. Yeah, yeah. I was um, actually, I was thinking about that as well. Um, yeah, which I, I really like don't look up. Uh, fuck all the critics that, that didn't like don't look up. That movie is wonderful. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting where like, you know, that movie is about like directly like, okay, how do you deal with the end of the world? How do you convince all of the powerful people to actually try to pull resources together to prevent the end of the world. And this seems to be more like, how do we just ignore it and cope with our lives? And like, it's, it seems like it's a show about just denial and just kind of not wanting to deal with the, uh, you know, impending event. Yeah. Well, I would say like, I feel it to be a good compliment to that movie. Um, in the sense that it takes already for granted that, everybody is aware and believes that the world is going to end. Like don't look up ends with everybody being urged to look up and like recognize the danger, Yeah, but it's going to hit, you know, in hours or something like that, if I remember correctly. And everybody squandered all their chances to do anything else. And here it's like, there is an inescapable thing that humanity is now convinced and does not, it's not as much of that cynical take. It's way more of a nihilistic take of like, okay, it's going to happen. What are you going to do about it? Everybody would probably accept it in this way. I feel like the main thing that I have always taken exception with don't look up is that How dare th you? there is a difference between uh, like trying to argue climate change with somebody and trying to argue that a meteor is going to hit at a certain point, the meteor becomes very obvious. And that's why like Kepler's a big ass fucking planet in the sky, because if we ever saw that, we would know we were fucked if it was just coming right at us. But like climate change, it's like something that people can argue because they can't see it visibly. And they, there's this kind of nebulousness that they lean on being the main thing that like, I just had an uncle at, at uh, Thanksgiving tell me there's no climate change. There's only climate, which just speaks to like, dude, that's a fucking, that's the stupidest thing ever. You just <laughs> speak in slogans. Does um, he just, does, does not think that like the weather ever changes? Yeah, like, he does. He just thinks that the weather is the weather, I guess. And uh, that it has nothing to do with humanity. Uh, nothing has anything to do with humanity and exponential math is a lie, I guess. I yeah, don't know. He, he, he tries to pull the, <laughs> the, oh, well, if you look back at this era, like based on the historical data before humanity existed, the earth was still doing this and this and this. Yeah. If you look back when volcanoes and the earth hadn't cooled enough and it's shooting a shit ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, obviously things are going to be fucked up, but yep. volcanoes don't fuck around right now. Like there's some that <laughs> they're, they're fucking they're, around they're, in Iceland right oh, now. Oh, there you go. There's some fucking yeah. around in Iceland and Mount mm. St. Helens happened, but like <laughs> they're not all having a party on earth anymore. Oh, right. Fucking <laughs> just caking everything in lava. Um, but yeah, like it, it is, I would say it's a good compliment because it ignores the, the, the asteroid's not the big deal. The big deal is like, how do humans actually process this? And I feel like it's a good reflection and a good mirror where don't look up as like a wake up call. Um, and, or it just serves as kind of like a, a pat on the back for people who already believe. Uh, and it just, that's where like, I kind of take the exception is like, I don't know who don't look up really convinces because it's already the crowd that's already believing what it is. Oh yeah. I don't think that's but what it's, it's, it's criticizing. To do. Yeah. It's criticizing yeah. like these other people and it, it is very much like lashing out at those non-believers. Whereas this is like, I feel like a much more approachable thought experiment of like, okay, well like, let's just say that you absolutely are fucked and there's no way around it. What are you exactly going to do? Like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you love? Because some people are like, 
oh, well, after I had my near-death experience, I started skydiving all the fucking time. But here, you don't have a near-death experience. You just have a long-death experience where you're waiting for it to happen. And in that moment, like, some people just curl up and start eating Doritos, and some people are, like, out there paragliding, and then there's Carol in the middle of it. Like, I just want to get a desk job and, like, print some copies and punch numbers into spreadsheets and feel normal. There's a moment where characters bond over the sounds of the office and the things that they love. And it's a weird, quiet moment that like I never thought about. But one of them was like, I've never worked a job in my life before this. And they're like, you've never worked a fucking day in your life. And he's like, no, but I like the things that you guys have in these offices. Like the feeling of like a stapler when you push it down all the way. It's just like nice. (laughs) And somebody else is like, yeah, like the click of a mouse is just, good like and they're kind of savoring every last piece of their senses because it's like gotten to this point where they just took it all for granted for so long because it's part of a fucking job or something but um yeah they have sweet moments all over the place and they even have a moment that or an episode that's kind of like the 22 short stories in springfield (laughs) um where they go through a lost and found and find different items and each item gets a, like a micro story about it and it doesn't even have to be directly about that item it's just it's somewhere in the scene and it has a piece of humanity tied to it hmm. it's fucking beautiful just like poetry uh and and i had such a great time with it so yeah anyways that was a long-winded answer to your uh your don't look up comparison dixon but there yeah. you go <laughs> that just speaks to how much i love this show i i can talk about it for it so sounds like long. It. From what you're describing, John, I really like the idea that it's focused on some of the like, even though it sounds like the the premise for the show could be like this bleak and just looming, um, you know, catastrophe like you're discussing. Like, I love that it, it focuses on those smaller moments of humanity, like the idea that the human spirit and just general like the human condition is such that, well, the world's going to end. Um you know, and, and you have some people who are like, I'm going to, th- I'm going to seek thrills. I'm going to go skydiving. I'm going to go paragliding, whatever. And you have other people who are like, the world's going to end. I need to be an accountant right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, that, that busy work, but then also like just the, the episode you discussed with essentially kind of like the 22, ep- uh, stories, stories yeah. yeah, short stories of Springfield, like just the idea that I, I view it kind of like, no matter how old you get, if you get into a really sh- shitty situation and you had a relationship with your mother and your mother is still alive, like there's a comfort you take in getting a hug from your mother, no matter how, how old you get. Yeah. And like we as humans seem to find those like those micro dosed kind of experiences that we take comfort in. Like there's a reason why there's an oddly satisfying subreddit like where people can look at something and just take satisfaction in it. And like this episode, you can take these small bits of satisfaction in the face of impending doom and just find some shroud of both humanity and comfort in whatever that is. I just, I love the way that that sounds. I, I realized that I do recognize Martha Kelly, Mar- Martha Kelly from a couple things. Uh, she's in marriage story, uh, uh, which we were uh, joking about before we started recording this. Yeah. And she is in corporate as a, a bit, uh, a bit yep. character in corporate, which is one of my absolute favorite TV shows. There you go. Yeah. So uh, Dixon, you should check it out. I know yeah. you're, you're not big into limited series or TV shows that often, but I, I recommend it and maybe watching it with the lady friend might be good too. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's definitely got like, 
it's definitely weird, but it's still got like heart that I think can pull anybody in. Does it have more heart than love actually? Oh, come on, Mikey. You know as well as I do that's fucking miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, John. You need to convince me with uh, like cue card size yeah, things yeah. with words on them. To before. me, mm-hmm. uh, Carol and the end of the world is perfect. Uh, I'm moving the cards out now. <laughs> but yeah. Like, like they never assume in that scene, like, what if the guy answered the door? What if he gets off the couch and walks up to the door at any time and sees his best buddy, like, showing love cue cards to his wife? No, Dixon, no, I have to save you. You have to stop talking about this right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you for yeah. pulling me back from the edge. Yeah. <laughs> Dixon in the end of the world. Uh <laughs> I have to watch Love Actually and write down all of the things that are terrible about it. Oh my gosh, you're going to go full Ryan on this. (laughs) Well, yeah, so obviously I would recommend Carol and the End of the World. Um, Everything that I've talked about, there are like minor spoilers infused within it, but I think that the ride is just so much more than spoilers can retain. Like, doesn't matter if you've gone through it once or twice like it's a great experience i'm already re-watching it to catch up with sasha and uh each episode just it puts more context and i fucking feel it more i love it it's great so yeah um well that'll bring our episode to an end uh so we have a recommendation for battlestar galactica again continue to think it's babylon 5 um (laughs) and we have a recommendation for american fiction uh which is currently in limited theaters but maybe hopefully it'll expand yeah if you're lucky enough it's in a theater near you but i'm sure it'll be streaming fairly soon yeah uh and then obviously recommendation for carol and the end of the world uh and with that i have been your host john garcia with us our special guest mark garcia and michael dixon thanks for putting up with our bullshit Hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.